Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive and have the chance to bring you glory with our lives, in our hearts, in our activities. And Father, we thank you right now for this special time that we often take for granted to gather together around the person of your Son and to gather together to know your Word, which means knowing you, Father. Help us not uh, take this lightly whatsoever, but this is a special and unique privilege that's recorded in eternity forever and ever. Father, we especially are grateful and thankful forevermore for your Son, Jesus Christ, who permanently paid our price on the cross. He paid our fine in full so that we could live in freedom and in relationship to you. We ask, Father, that you bless this message. You guide the speaker and those listening. Help us hear your special message for us tonight through your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Okay, the Lord is our confidence, part 48. So uh, just on a personal note, um, even though I was traveling, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Sunday's message and the, the methodical way, the methodical nature that the Spirit led us to be thoughtful about the sphere of God. Uh, I just really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm thankful, therefore, to have the opportunity to fill in tonight for Pastor Collins and to do a review of sorts, uh, which contained a lot of freeing principles on Sunday. So we'll see uh, what the Spirit brings us to tonight. <clears throat> An important principle the Spirit has revealed to us lately is that obedience and love are intrinsic to one another. And the analogy Pastor gave us on Sunday was pretty interesting, uh, that of hydrogen and oxygen combining to make up water. And it really, you know, we're so used to it, if you, if you know this is how, where water comes from, Whenever you get used to something, you forget how miraculous it is. And as Pastor mentioned, why would two gases combine to form something as wonderful as water? And individually, they cannot quench our thirst whatsoever, but together they are a miraculous substance that gives life to our physical bodies, where we literally wouldn't be alive without that. So the analogy was that obedience and love are sort of like that. Uh, hydrogen and oxygen coming together. Uh, they can't be separately floating apart, so to speak, from each other. To have the power and the life that they have or that they give when united. Love and obedience. So what we're talking about <clears throat> on the board is one in essence. One in essence. If love and obedience aren't linked together, if they're disjoint, then they don't place us in the sphere of God, nor do they satisfy our thirst for peace with God. That's going to come up again towards the end of the message, especially about peace with God. Isn't that really what it's all about? Both eternal peace with God, forgiveness from God, and experiential peace with God which comes from doing the right thing. Righteousness, hopefully you remember that connection also. But again, on the board, if love and obedience aren't linked together, if they're disjoint, then they don't place us in the sphere of God, nor do they satisfy our thirst for peace with God. So let's turn in our Bibles again to a wonderful passage we saw on Sunday. Go to John chapter 4. John 4, and we saw what a wonderful illustration of the Lord reaching out to the lost with his gift of salvation. What a wonderful illustration this is, live in action example, so to speak. Look at John 4, verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is in the Jewish day about 12 noon. So it was hot out. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for me a drink? Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. I mean, just think about it, too. Um, it's almost like a peace offering right here. If a Jew, who normally doesn't talk to Samaritans, reaches out, okay, offers peace, so to speak, we're going to talk about um, intimacy again in a minute, right? So how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here we see a lot of wonderful things, but especially the wonderful simplicity of salvation as simple and pure as drinking a glass of water. Jesus used this analogy to describe how our souls can be satisfied. Our spiritual thirst to be at peace with God can be quenched. The Lord came to seek and to save. This we know quite well. The Lord also desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.4 to come to the knowledge of the truth aka to come to know him who is the truth and so we have an example here of a woman who is ready to receive the truth ready to have her thirst quenched and how does Jesus approach this Samaritan woman who is viewed as an outcast by the Jews so this is kind of the main point of this passage, at least this time around. There's so much we could scoop out of this passage and eat on this passage forever. But the main point coming out lately is that Jesus sought intimacy. He sought it. He didn't sit back and wait for people to come to him. He sought intimacy. He sought to show people respect and uh, care. He reached out with an olive branch, so to speak, to a Samaritan woman. Maybe she was elated that a Jew spoke to her as a kind person. Maybe it was the first Jew that ever spoke to her kindly. Who knows? But Jesus sought intimacy. He reached out to her personally, and he entered into a personal discussion. We, we in our society today, we love to stay to ourselves. We, we kind of train that way just with media and technology and some of the negativity around, right, the negative people around, whatever it is. So we train ourselves that way. It's so easy to go back into a shell and say, you know what, I'll let God handle it all. <laughs> you know, go be, a, go be a monk on a mountain or something. It's very easy to do that, but it's wimping out of the spiritual life. It's denying faith and the power of faith that God can give us. Obviously, it's not God's plan for us. He wants us to reach out personally to people and seek intimacy. Jesus here wanted to establish some rapport with her and reveal that he cared about her. When's the last time you did that to someone that maybe you didn't know very well? As came out some months ago from behind this pulpit, to establish a human connection, Jesus first asked for help with something. Do you remember that? That came out, I don't know, two, three months ago maybe. 
in a message I did, this exact same verse. Jesus asked her help with something. He didn't need anybody's help. So why did he do it? Why did he say to her, give me a drink? Have you ever thought about witnessing to someone and starting out by asking them for help with something? And why might that be effective? There's nothing quite like human connection being established. Human connection. You know, I was thinking about this passage and the Lord saying, give me a drink. And how for us, we can make a human connection because we're all sinners, right? We can relate to someone that way. We could say, oh, I know what you're going through, or I know what you did. I did that too, right? But Jesus didn't, you know, do that. He never sinned. But what he did do is he related as a human being. He said, you know what? I'm thirsty. Can you give me a drink? And that, as small as that might seem, everybody craves connection with someone else. And every woman and man craves to be useful and helpful. That's how God designed us. We all have that craving to be, uh, have purpose in our life, right? To do something with meaning, to be useful, to be helpful in some way. And that's what Jesus uses here to draw her into an intimate, personal conversation. So maybe this is an example that our Lord uh, gave us that we can look to imitate. This idea of Jesus seeking intimacy with someone came up last Wednesday, if you remember, in our discussion on the Great Commission. The Great Commission came up again. And seeking intimacy with someone as a starter, to have a real conversation with someone. So one of the most powerful ways to witness to others, uh, hopefully you've seen this too and I've seen it personally, is one-on-one. Because there's no one else around to make people feel self-conscious or um, defensive. Just one-on-one. You can actually be a little bit open and they can be a little bit open with you. Once you establish what? A little rapport. A little intimacy. And then all of a sudden, I mean, you've seen it in the world, right? When you can relate to someone on anything. It could be something silly like a sports team, right? It could be something small like, oh, I have the same car as you. All of a sudden... You're really warm <laughs> in the conversation. Almost like uh, it's almost ridiculous that it can warm up that easily from talking about a car. But it happens, doesn't it? <clears throat> so why don't we do that more often? Um, maybe that's like Paul saying, be all things to all men. So anyway, one-on-one is very effective, and it allows people to be real and honest with each other, establishing intimacy. And if you can establish some intimacy, people will begin to trust what you're saying. It's kind of, again, a strange phenomenon that you can talk for one minute to somebody about a car that's similar to yours and they almost instantly trust you because you have this bond, which really isn't that meaningful at all. But now there's some level of trust where they will listen to you. They see you're a real person, maybe. They see that you like what they like. And now all of a sudden, they might just be willing to listen to you about the gospel. So you can also show others you're approaching them because you actually care about them and what happens to them. That's kind of what Jesus did here. That's the love of God we see Jesus exuding in this passage with the woman at the well. So again, let's look at the key passage in John 4, 13 and 14. You're still there, right? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So on Sunday, the Spirit gave us a good way to look at this phrase on the board, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To drink from the well that Jesus referred to was to have one's spiritual thirst for God quenched. To drink him implies the utmost intimacy, Allah to know him. 
as in Matthew 7.23 and John 17.3. Again, to drink from the well that Jesus referred to was to have one's spiritual thirst for God quenched. To drink Him implies the utmost intimacy. It's one thing to know of someone, and this came out on Sunday. It's one thing to know of someone, even to know some facts about them. In fact, you could know a ton of facts about them and not know their heart, not really know them, such as what makes them tick. It's totally different to know someone. Too many people today claim to know facts about God from all different religions, but they haven't decided to drink the water from Christ. A totally different and intimate thing. To receive, to accept Him fully as one's own. That's totally different than knowing someone from afar, no matter how many facts or statistics you might have about them. So these people walk around the well. They might even look down in it and see how deep it is but they refuse to drink from it. Due to selfishness, they resist his offer of pure water, his offer to come to know him as their own Lord and Savior. So this, again, is, is where we're at in the message, is, is knowing God, knowing Jesus. That's a picture of salvation. That's a picture of being in the sphere of God. That's what happens for a believer at least to some degree, and, pro and progressively increasing, hopefully, a believer is getting to know, really know God, and know our Lord and Savior. So that's why Jesus said in, uh, to some people in Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. I never knew you. All right? you, you talked about me. You knew some facts about me. You used me for your conveniences. You avoided me when you didn't want to be bothered. I never knew you. In other words, you never knew me either. And note that these people in Matthew 7.23, if you look at this verse on the board, these people were characterized as workers of lawlessness, which is a reflection of their hearts towards the Lord and His Word. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are many religious people who conveniently use Jesus' name, but they refuse to drink of him in their hearts. And the evidence of that? What's the evidence of it? Disobedience? Practicing lawlessness? In other words, you don't really care about me or you do obey what I say. If you love me, you'd obey me. It's very simple, isn't it? It goes for almost any relationship with any authority. So the evidence that someone's heart is not with him or that they don't know the Lord is disobedience, practicing lawlessness. They've kept the Lord at arm's length as another of many gods even, just so they don't have to submit or surrender to him not realizing it means their own very salvation from sin and death. But that's the stubbornness and the uh, stupidity of the human flesh. They try to satisfy their own thirst on their own terms. And they want to have peace with God on their own merits. That's religion. So there's another example that came to me as I was, I was reviewing and everything of intimacy in the Bible, uh, besides the Lord's offer to drink of him, and that is eating with him. Eating with him is also another very intimate activity, if you think about it. There's certain people you just don't want to eat with, right? that fair to say? I'd rather not spend any unnecessary intimate time with them. But those that you love, you generally want to eat with. You want to converse, you want to uh, love each other and share food or whatever it is. Anyhow, uh, the Bible talks about this, and if you think about it, whenever you eat with someone, it is a time of intimacy to at least some degree, different degrees with different people. So on the board, being invited to dine with the king. 
The invitation into the sphere of God implies an intimate relationship. If the king calls you to his table, that's a special opportunity to be in his home and eat of his blessings. So is the offer of salvation. Turn away from your own food and drink and receive his supply if you want peace with your king. If a, if a real-life king, there aren't many these days, but the ruler of a nation invited you to dinner, and you said no, you said, I don't think I'm going to go, what would your friend say to you? The first thing would be a violent reaction of, what are you, nuts? What are you, crazy? You're going to deny that invitation? Even if you don't really like the guy, you probably should honor his authority or something, or you might be angry. He has legitimate authority. So <clears throat> this is an opportunity to enter the sphere of God. It's an analogy, obviously, uh, to be intimate with God. We're invited into the sphere of God through Jesus Christ, through dining with him, through drinking the water of life. And the example we're going to look at is Matthew twenty-two fourteen. So why don't you turn there, Matthew 22, And while you do that, again, the point on the board, being invited to dine with the king. The invitation into the sphere of God implies an intimate relationship. If the king calls you to his table, that's a special opportunity to be in his home and eat, his, eat of his blessings. So is the offer of salvation. Turn away from your own food and drink and receive his supply if you want peace with your king. To refuse a king's offer of generosity is unthinkable. Uh, it's even an insult. When a king offers you intimacy, it's such an honor and so ridiculous to refuse. But many will refuse to dine with the Lord and come to know him. Maybe they think it's too intimate for them. Uh, they want to hold on to their own ways or the stubbornness of the flesh has a lot of silly reasons. Look at Matthew 22, verse 1. We're just going to read through this whole parable. Take, take from it what the Spirit gives you. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to, the, therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Can you imagine refusing the king's garment? Which in the Bible, for us, it's called the robe of righteousness. We receive the righteousness of Christ when we dine with him. So the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In the offer of salvation, it's an offer of intimacy with one's creator and king. It's utter foolishness for somebody to refuse his gracious offer, especially because man's already under judgment and is being offered forgiveness and peace. But again, that's the stubbornness of man's flesh. So what we're talking about here 
big picture is we're talking about trust. We're talking about trust. And trust is an intimate, soulish decision, without a doubt. It's like the difference between relating with an acquaintance versus a friend. An acquaintance only gets certain superficial facts about you, right? For example, we don't want to have a whole meal with that person, so we'll have a coffee so I can get out of there as quick as I might need to. And we just don't reveal things to an acquaintance because we don't have trust there. But you give a friend detailed private information about you because you trust them, plain and simple. Such is trusting Jesus with our salvation. And maybe that's why Jesus sought intimacy with the Samaritan at the well. So again, the point on the board, <clears throat> a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To drink from the well that Jesus referred to was to have one's spiritual thirst for God quenched. To drink him in implies the utmost intimacy. A lot to know him. Turn in your Bibles to John 17, 3. I mean, think about it. Even if you shared your cup with somebody, that's intimate, right? Do you let anybody drink from your cup or your can of soda? Right? Maybe if you trust them and you, you're close enough to them, but uh, you don't, it's, it's an intimate activity. In this way, much more so. To drink him in implies the utmost intimacy. Allah, to know him. Look at John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. To know someone is an intimate description of a meaningful relationship between two people. And knowing God, that is eternal life. There's an intimacy there. There has to be. Here it's stated that eternal life itself is characterized by knowing God. This is why when our souls drink the word of God with a humble heart, our thirst is quenched, is it not? When we go into the word of God, whether it's here in class or at home reading your Bible, when you go at it with a humble heart, are you not quenched in your soul? Are you not satisfied in your soul? So we're coming to know our amazing God more and more when we drink of his word in a humble way. And at salvation, we humbly received his offer of eternal life, a water without cost. Thank God for that. Uh, turn to Revelation 21, verse 6. Revelation 21, 6. <clears throat> Again, salvation is as simple as drinking a glass of water. But it is also very intimate. Revelation 21, 6 through 7, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's a similar phrase to what we saw in John 4. Springing up. Springing up in him. Here we see the spring of the water of life without payment. What's the first thing you do after you have a good drink? Right? As a believer, you're saying, ah, peace with God. When you've embraced him, when you decide to drink of his well, that's what you did in your soul. When you got it, when you understood that his payment was for real and in full. So the believer decides to trust 
the graciousness or the gracious offer of the king by repenting and receiving his mercy and forgiveness by faith. However, an unbeliever can read their Bible all they want and come away unsatisfied because his heart refused to drink of the water of life. Again, he's walking around the well, inspecting it. He's looking down the well, see how deep it is, but he refuses to drink. A little too intimate for me. I don't want to surrender in that way. I don't want to submit to you in that way, even though I don't realize I'm giving away my own salvation. <clears throat> so the unbeliever is in the flesh and wants to have a part in salvation's payment, remember. What do we just read in Revelation 21? Without payment? Receive the water of life without payment? The unbeliever wants a part in his own salvation. He wants part in the payment to take some credit. Does the unbeliever realize this is what's going on in his head, in his heart? Probably not. But his stubborn heart refuses the offer to come to know the Lord as his personal Savior. That's the invitation. He will keep him again at arm's length and try to get into the kingdom by coming to only know of him, which is a big, huge mistake. That's why Jesus was saying, I never knew you. As the Spirit also taught us on Sunday, as an example, an unbeliever, and even believers acting disoriented from God's will, can experience love, but remain distressed. Think of love and obedience again. Okay, an unbeliever, or even a believer who's, you know, going AWOL, can experience love, but still remain distressed in their soul. Because why? They're choosing disobedience. Or the unbeliever can experience obedience. Like in a religious way. Oh, cool, a treadmill. Let me jump on this and try to earn some points. They can experience obedience, but remain insecure. The only reason you're insecure, ultimately, is because you don't think you're loved. And they reject the love of God. It isn't until humility links these two things together that one's spiritual thirst for peace with God is truly quenched. Until humility links together in our souls love and obedience and how they really are one in essence. Remember that previous slide? That's the only time our spiritual thirst for peace with God is truly going to be quenched. Do you remember the peace the peaceful fruit of righteousness in Hebrews 12. You have peace in your heart because you're doing the right thing. You have lack of peace in your heart when you do the wrong thing because you know your father's mad at you. You have peace in your heart when you do the right thing because you know you're pleasing to the father. Really so simple, isn't it? So again, knowing God is the very description of eternal life. Um, go back to uh, John 17, 3 again. <clears throat> I think I made you turn. John 17, 3. So again, knowing God is the very description of eternal life. That's intimate. In other words, eternal life isn't a thing. It's not a free ticket to heaven. It's not a crown. Uh, it's not a pass. It's not a thing. It is a relationship. Eternal life is knowing God or coming to know God. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you see the intimate relationship here? God is eternal life. To have his life is tantamount to knowing him. To knowing this loving God that sacrificed everything, sacrificed everything for us. This is abiding in the sphere of God himself. By grace, through faith, which God himself provides for us. So let's go back to the Lord's uh, drinking water analogy in John 4. Let's look at it this way. Would you drink something 
given to you from someone that you don't trust. Ever been in that situation? It could be, it could be a quote-unquote friend who loves to play practical jokes. Or it could be someone you honestly don't know very well and they're, they're offering you a drink and you don't know what's in the cup. Would you drink something given to you from someone that you don't trust? You wouldn't, right? I guess if you're drunk, you might, right? Or if you feel like being a fool, you might. But otherwise, it's kind of a stupid thing to do. So if someone gave you a cup to drink and said, try this, but you doubt that person's integrity and honor, you wouldn't drink it. Because for one simple reason, you don't trust them. So Jesus sought intimacy. He's like, let me talk to you. Will you help me? Let me reach out to you. I know I'm Jewish. I still want to talk to you. Drinking here is a very intimate activity. It is one person helping another to satisfy the thirst. In this case, it implies believing in or trusting in what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. Jesus was, in a, in a sense, challenging her, right? He's building rapport first. He was seeking intimacy, showing his kindness to her. And then there was a challenge. You see I'm real. You see I'm talking. You see I'm kind. Are you willing to believe me? Are you willing to trust me? Jesus is saying, do you trust me? Are you willing to believe what I'm saying to you? If so, I will help you. I will satisfy your thirst completely because I am. I am the one, right? Again, as Pastor described so well on Sunday, a very intimate relationship is being formed here. One where someone's actually willing to surrender and be vulnerable even. Willing to trust someone else. In this case, the Lord. So it is with any person who surrenders to him and has their come to Jesus moment for real. It's very intimate. They literally place their trust in him and they trust him with their lives. Isn't that what we all do when we finally come to Christ on our knees? We're trusting him with our very life. We could be gone tonight, right? We're trusting him with our very life. And that gives us peace because of who he is. We have peace with God. So basically, as Jesus said in John 4, never be thirsty again. Believers trust the Lord Jesus Christ to take care of them and quench their thirst for peace with God. We know we don't have peace with God on our own. We know we, we would always be in doubt of having peace with God if it was relying on ourselves. But with him, because of his perfection, because of his love, because of his promises, he actually quenches that thirst for peace with God where we can let it go and trust him. Again, on the board, never be thirsty again. Believers trust the Lord Jesus Christ to take care of them and quench their thirst for peace with God. This living water comes from him alone, from he who is the word. And thus the reality for the true believer, at least to some degree, is if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you keep my commands, you'll abide in my love. That is a reality for a true believer, at least to some degree, and hopefully increasing. But that's the sphere of God. That's being in the sphere of God. As Pastor Collins said on Sunday, whenever we broach the subject of the sphere of God or life eternal or knowing him or abiding in his love or even keeping his commandments, we must understand that all these things are a package deal. If you try to pluck one thing out of the sphere of God, you're going to suffer. You're going to be missing something. Your thirst won't be quenched because you're trying to be satisfied by drinking a gas. Just pretty humorous. But you won't be quenched. Why would you try to drink something like that on your own or on its own when you can have the real deal? When you can have 
<clears throat> the powerful final product. The power is found only when these things are linked together, like hydrogen and oxygen giving us water. So let's again look at the interlocking reality of love and obedience. The interlocking reality of love and obedience. It just is. It is what it is. If you, if you love God, you will obey. If you obey God, you are loving Him. It just, inter, it, it's by necessity, it is interlocking. As Pastor said on Sunday, the Bible reveals the following truths. If you pluck love out of the bundle, quote-unquote, but leave behind obedience, you end up becoming licentious. I like the love of God part, but I don't, I don't want this obedience thing. You end up becoming licentious and disobedient. If you pluck obedience out of the bundle because you like to be religious, leaving love behind, you end up being religious and even self-righteous. You see how uh, these good things almost become bad things on their own? When you're singling out things that belong in the sphere of God as a whole, as one in essence. The Bible tells us about these types of people, and we see these types of people active, actively today in our lives. And this is how, and just uh, think about this for a minute, this is how one creates his own God to satisfy his own desires. As hopefully you know, one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, that's what people in churches do a lot today. Um, even people that just claim to be spiritual, have a connection with God or spirits, they put other gods before the one true God. Many of them reject the God of the Bible to create a God that suits their own needs and desires. But it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's another Jesus and another God. And so these people suffer. Being disjoint from the holy God of the universe, their creator and savior. Want to be unhappy in life? Be disjoint from the very one who created you in his own image. So he created you in, your, in, in his own image, which means you're supposed to be like him and, and walking like him and fulfilled by him, right? It's how we're, we're built, so to speak. And you want to be happy if you separate from the one who actually created you, molded you. God's a package deal. Otherwise, you've created for yourself a false God with no power to save you. And we can even do it as believers. We can go back to the mire. We can, we can um, live in self-pity or resentment or be angry with God. And we just do it to ourselves. It's like turning to a false God as we start picking and choosing what we like. As Pastor Collins also said on Sunday... Those seeking their own version of God have divorced themselves from the fruit of the real thing. That fruit being things like peace, contentment, and confidence in the Lord. Those seeking their own version of God have divorced themselves from the fruit of the real thing. The fruit of God is like amazingly satisfying and fulfilling and peaceful. There's something about knowing when there's nothing missing, right? It's something about knowing you don't have to chase something or you're missing something or when your soul isn't agitated anymore. When your soul is agitated, you know there is something missing. You're not thinking correctly. You're not, you're not receiving something from God. You're kind of pushing it aside. But when your soul is at total peace, this is where you're at right here. You're, you're receiving the fruit of the sphere of God such as peace, contentment, and confidence in the Lord. And even as believers who have come to the Lord for His salvation, by His well of eternal life springing up in us, we can live in the flesh and pick and choose and therefore miss out on His blessings. This also came up on Sunday on the board. Are you missing His peace? 
and nobody's perfect at times. We all experience this. But if you're missing his peace, it's not God's fault. It's sin's fault. It's sin in us that we allow to have its way with us, even if it's in a small, subtle way that we don't see at the time. If we don't have peace, it's not God's fault. Sin is somehow controlling us. Faith is what's missing in that moment. That's what came out on Sunday also. Faith is what's missing in that moment. We lack faith. We aren't trusting God to fill the gaps in our soul. We start plugging the holes with pieces of gum in a dam to stop the leaks in our own way, to satisfy or quench the thirst in our soul in our own way. We're lacking faith. We dropped it. We walked away from it. We're not trusting God to fill the gaps in in our soul, even those things that we might be hurting from or feel we're lacking, whatever it is, we're not trusting God to fill in the gaps. It's a lack of faith. But on the board, the power of true faith, Jesus had a peace that transcended all circumstances. Why? Faith. At the core of his peace was faith. And his faith was perfect, of course. He embodied truth, and therefore he enjoyed perfect, ongoing freedom, which is what truth gives us. But we have to choose to have faith in the truth, to trust him. Jesus always abided in the sphere of God, completely and wholly. So tough to compare ourselves to him, right? But we're supposed to follow him. We're supposed to look at his example. He had perfect peace and a sense of security that his disciples did not have in the scene with the boat in the storm. And what was his response to their panic? What was Jesus' response to their panic? In other words, here's why you're panicking, guys. On the board, Matthew 8, 26, he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? That's why you're panicking right now. You of little faith. As we heard on Sunday, faith is the vehicle that leads us into the very sphere of God. We can do nothing without faith. We will suffer without faith. If you need more faith, ask him. So we can do nothing without faith. Faith is the vehicle that leads us into the sphere of God. And we can do anything with faith. So says the word of God. So in other words, we can be fully in the sphere of God by faith. Because with faith, everything's possible. Mark 9, 23b, in the NIV, Jesus said, Everything is possible for him who believes. Again, faith is the vehicle that leads us into the very sphere of God. It's even possible to be in his presence. To know him. To have his peace. It's even possible to do that. Even in these fleshly bodies that we walk around in. Because all things are possible for him who believes. Jesus opens up the door to eternal life to the one who's willing to drink from his well by faith. And this woman, the Samaritan woman, was willing. Again, faith is the vehicle that leads us into the very sphere of God. As we begin to close... We also heard on Sunday when the Bible uses the phrase obedience of faith, it's simply referring to abiding in the sphere of God. Obedience of faith. When you obey, when you follow him and his commands, you are abiding in the sphere of God. You're at peace with your father, so to speak, even experientially. God is saying, stay here. Stay in my presence. And this is how to do so. And as came up earlier in the lesson, when you love someone, you do what they say. Isn't, it, isn't that true? Isn't that that simple? When you love someone, it could be a friend, it could be a parent, it could be a spouse, it could be a child. All right? Hopefully you're not obeying your children, but you know what I mean. When you love someone, you do what they say. 
If you don't do what they say, your love is lacking. That's living in a loving household and obeying the rules of the house so that peace and love remain in the house experientially. That came up on Sunday also. Think about that. When you love someone, you do what they say. So you love the security of the house, as Pastor was saying. You love the security of the house. You love all the blessings. You love how there's order in the house and there's love in the house. But you don't want to obey the rules of the house. And when you do that, the peace and the love are disturbed in this precious house, this home. Now we're talking about the house of your soul, where the spirit is supposed to reign over you. You want peace in your house? It requires love and obedience to the rules. And even though your flesh doesn't like the rules, your spirit loves the rules. You know why? Because there's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You have peace when you're doing the right thing to your authority. You have peace in your soul. You have peace experientially in the home because you're doing what's right. And that's a different type of happiness than the world offers. But it's, uh, it's real. It's, uh, it's got substance. There's nothing like peace. There's nothing like your soul not being agitated. His peace is experienced when we follow his lead. And that's why the greatest experience in this lifetime is to abide in truth. To abide in truth. Because we, when we abide in truth, we abide in his love. And the true litmus test for abiding in the sphere of God is love. When we love one another, we reveal God himself to other people. And God becomes visible to man. I want to combine a couple passages, one that I read recently and one that was in the message on Sunday. <clears throat> on the board, obeying the command to love. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 John 4, 11 through 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. Now, why is that in there? When I read this, I was like, wow, that kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. It's almost not even like fitting the context. No one has ever seen God. What's the point? If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us or matured in us. In other words, people see God in you through his love. And the true litmus test of love is obedience. The true lit limits test of obedience is love. They're interlocking. They're, they're, they're connected. They're inseparable if you want goodness from them in the sphere of God. Love and obedience are reciprocal because they are intrinsically related to each other. So let's close tonight with a few verses about how our thirst for peace with God can be quenched. Uh, turn again in your Bibles to Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14. Go quickly. I only got two and a half minutes. Everyone's got to get home for their TV shows. Sorry, Pastor. Colossians 3.14. And above all these... Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Again, we, we look for all the connections. All the connections. Put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Go to James 3, verse 17. James 3.17. I read this passage as I was doing my own Bible reading, and it's about the wisdom of God, but something really stuck out to me, which fits here in this discussion of uh, our thirst being quenched 
our desire to have peace with God being quenched. James 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Haven't we been talking about the fruit of being in the sphere of God? Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What stuck out to me is that his wisdom is full of peace. His wisdom is gentle. It's all, these are all related terms, very similar terms in this passage. And that only comes from living in and abiding in his love through obedience. We will not receive his peace any other way. And go to Philippians 4, verse 8. Philippians 4, verse 8. Hurry up, i got one minute left. Philippians 4, 8. <clears throat> Good thing you're all veterans here tonight. Not military, you know what I mean. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice, obey, and the God of peace will be with you. Abiding in the sphere of God results in the fruit of peace, among other things. It's the evidence of where we stand in our relationship with God, of how we're residing in the sphere of His love and obedience. And again, as the Spirit made clear to us on Sunday, abiding is a package deal. On the board, abiding in the sphere of, we can never play the game of asking for peace, but rejecting the obedience of faith. We can't expect to experience love if we're cold to the truth the very embodiment of it. And a good summary often has the least words on the board. Obedience of faith always leads to peace. It's really so simple. You know, our flesh gets in the way and pulls us away and tempts us and says, I see another way, you know, another path that way. The crooked path over there, the one that, you know, has this false lighting. And um, it sucks us away. It doesn't want us to have the peace of God. It offers us a counterfeit peace. Obedience of faith, though, it's always going to end up with goodness in our souls. We're always going to be, uh, have our thirst quenched experientially, too. It always leads to peace. So we have to fight through those times of... Um, those times of questioning, those times of temptation where we say, there's another way, I want to stick with my own way, or whatever it is, whatever part of life you do that in. We have to fight through that, almost like walking through a uh, high level of mud. You know, how difficult it is to trudge through something like that. Keep going forward. Don't turn to the right or the left, right? Keep going forward. Look at the prize. Look at the promises. Because obedience of faith always leads to peace. Every time. But we must go onward. And the proof point is that Jesus was perfect in obedience and faith, and therefore he had perfect peace. And so can we, at least to a greater degree in this life. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And for your Holy Spirit who brings it all together for us. We thank you for your graciousness, your mercy, your gentleness with us, your patience with us. Father, you know our hearts. You know we're here to get to know you. And we ask that you help us, that you increase our faith, that you help us put aside the things in the world, that you help us believe your promises. 
and realize that obedience of faith always leads to peace with you. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go and as we go out into the world to spread your word and your good news to those who are lost and dying and don't realize it. We ask all these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen.